Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Hello everybody and welcome along to another Inside Story. I'm John Hindorf and I've literally travelled to the opposite side of the world to where you normally find us because I'm in Australia. I'm at the oldest inland settlement in Australia. That's Bathurst if you didn't know. Built on the gold rush way back in time. But of course known to us as motorsport enthusiasts is the home of Mount Panorama and one of the world's greatest motor racing circuits. In fact, we've been to where I am here before, but it was quite a while ago, so we thought it'd be a good idea to update you and give you another look at the inside story of the Australian National Motor Racing Museum here at Bathurst. So, let's go inside. The inside story on the teams, suppliers and circuits. Inside. Well, it's a Monday morning after a race event, so it's quite busy already. And the man who, well, you weren't here the last time that I was here, Brad. So introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about how long you've been here. John, thank you very much for coming. My name's Brad Owen. I'm the museum coordinator here at the National Motor Racing Museum at Bathurst. I've been here just over 12 months. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of one of those dream jobs that everyone you, you tell what you do for a living, they go, how do you get that job? So, uh, yeah, here, here we are. And welcome again. And your background then, is, is it in... Uh, motor racing? Is it in museum? Is it in automotive? What do you have to have on the CV to get this dream job? Well, um, my, my background's kind of funny. Um, I, I wanted to be a fighter pilot when I was a boy. Um, joined the Air Force, as, as you do. Uh, went through a bit of that. Had some dramas and ended up being the curator of the Royal Australian Air Force Museum down in Melbourne for 20 years. Um, had done that, you know, but I've always been a car guy. You know, my uncle was a Holden dealer. I grew up with the era of Brock and all the touring car racing here at Bathurst. Had been up here as a spectator and a punter a whole bunch of times. And I, I do cars. So when I saw museum experience and a knowledge of cars and motorsport, I went, this is the job for me. I'm going to move from Melbourne to Bathurst and we're here. So drag the family up with you as well? Absolutely. A couple of kids and, uh, and my wife came up with us and uh, we've, we've, we've done the tree change. We've left the big smoke behind and we're living here in the beautiful city of Bathurst. Well, and in fairness, what we should say is whilst this is a, a big draw, as is Mount Panorama, Bathurst and the region, are, it's an absolutely beautiful place to come. Whether there's motor racing on or not, it's in some ways a, a little hidden gem for visitors. They, they should be thinking about coming to, to this part. Absolutely. You know, we, um, we have beautiful scenery. The weather's, apart from winter, it's, it gets pretty cold in winter, but uh, it's very... What benign. do you mean pretty cold? Well, yeah, yeah. By, by European standards, you know, minus eight is nothing, but certainly <laughs> coming from Melbourne, uh, minus eight was challenging last winter. But it is. It's lovely. There's plenty of stuff going on around town. There's so much history. And it's only two and a half hours, three hours from Sydney, so it is actually a really great spot. Yeah, and it's a lovely drive as well. Now, you've been here uh, just on a year, as you mentioned... But I, even looking through the double doors into the museum area itself, I can see there's been some big changes in the years since I have been here. What was your remit? Well, let's have a walk through, actually, and we'll let these people do their shopping. Morning. Morning. Um, what was your remit when you came here? Uh, from Because, of course, this is... Um, Supported by Bathurst Regional Council. Absolutely. Bathurst Regional Council has three museums at the moment and are about to open a fourth later this year. So museums are an important part of what we do and they tie in with the history of Bathurst, the town. When I started here, there hadn't been somebody in in the manager position for about nine or ten years. So things had been ticking along. A few cars are changing here and there, but there hadn't really been anyone in place to concentrate. We were opening the doors. We were letting the people in to see the museum, but there hadn't been a great deal of development. So one of the things I'm doing is we're setting up an exhibition program. So we've had a couple of special exhibitions on important topics, but we're actually looking at redoing a lot of the museum content to tell the story of motor racing in Australia. It might not just be a 
about motorbikes and touring cars at Mount Panorama, but we can tell a broader story about the history of the sport in the country. How long has the museum actually been here? So we have just celebrated our 30th anniversary. The museum opened in uh, May 1998. It was in a temporary facility underneath the pit building. It was in the old media centre. So when the race came around in October, the museum got moved out. They set the media up in there. And then after the race, the cars would go back into the museum. Uh, the full-time permanent museum location that we're in now was originally developed in 92, 93 and then over the years bits and pieces have been added to it so it, it, it's been built in stages to what we have now. And what we have now is a purpose-built facility which houses the most amazing collection of cars and motorcycles, mostly race cars and motorcycles but not exclusively so. Now I recognise some of the exhibits even from I think four or five years ago when I was here but there's a lot of new stuff as well and one of the things that you mentioned there were uh, exhibits and themed exhibits and at the moment you're celebrating the career of one of uh, Australia's best known and probably best loved motor racing drivers, also one of uh, your greatest exports as well because he has done a bit of racing elsewhere in the world and that's Craig Lowndes. He announced his retirement towards the back end of last year from sort of full-time top level racing. I have the suspicion that that doesn't mean he's hung up his helmet completely uh, having spoken to him on a number of occasions myself. Uh, what, what, was, what was behind that and I mean it seems an obvious choice when you look at it but um, how hard or easy was it to, to put together? Well it was, it was really fun. We chose Craig Lowndes as a story to tell and it worked really well given that he won the uh, Bathurst 1000 last year and in 2018. But he, he is such an important figure. You know, he, he crosses the Ford and Holden divide, which in Australia is, is massive. Um, he's really well loved and he's been such a significant figure for nearly 25 years in the sport. And we thought, you know, a great opportunity to do that. Um, we started talking to Craig around October last year. We started lining up a few cars and started chasing up some of the items. We were lucky enough that Craig was able to loan us a whole bunch of trophies, helmets and suits from his personal collection. So, you know, this is stuff that he has at home that you don't get to see. Mm -hmm. um, we've had up to five cars here that are relevant throughout his career and a whole bunch of photographs and information that we've, we've dug out of the woodwork. So it's been really great. We've had an enormous reaction from the fans to come here. We've had a huge increase in our visitation at the museum to see this show. Well, as, as a starting point for a, a themed exhibition, the man who really set the tone for crossing the Holden-Ford divide and, and in fact in some ways made that acceptable, uh, that tribal nature of, of the, uh, the Blue Oval versus the Red Lion uh, was probably at its height when Craig first made the jump across and in, and in some ways he made that acceptable for those that did it afterwards. Absolutely, you know, he's probably the first driver for a very, very long time that people follow the driver, not the team. So, you know, the Holden fans went, oh, you know, if a, if a Ford has to win, I, I want it to be a Lounsey because he's my guy, you know. He used to be a Holden guy and now he's one of them, but he's kind of one of us still. And even when he went back the other way from Ford, the Ford fans last year in October, you could hear on the mountain, they're going, oh, look, we would have loved a Ford to win. But, you know, we're glad it was Lounsey because he's retiring and all of that sort of stuff. And what's the, uh, what's the length, the duration of this, this lounge exhibition? How long are you going to keep this going? Look, um, we're getting towards the end of, of having the stuff from Craig. Um, the first couple of cars left after two months. We'll probably keep the thing, things on the wall and the information around until mid, mid this year. And then for October, we'll be looking at having another exhibition around the 1,000 race weekend. And it, is that going to be, generally speaking, the the format as you go forward you'll be looking to refresh around about October time when the when the 1000 case comes around. Yeah look I think the vision long term is to have two major exhibitions a year and given that we have the 12 hour in February mm. and also the October race for the 1000 they are probably the natural points to uh, to actually break that up and give us enough time to actually reset you know we've, we've done a whole bunch of painting got new showcases in and things like that so it's not the work of a moment we don't have a huge amount of staff but equally, we might be able to feature some smaller groups of cars, something relevant during the middle of the year, so that you know, even when there's not a big race on, people have got a reason to come back to Bathurst and come and visit the museum and see what's changed since last time. Well, and that's the key, isn't it? Because for so long, and, and you know, as you said, there was nobody really overseeing and curating the museum for better part of a decade. You could have come year on year and actually seen very little difference. I mean, this is extraordinary. There's new lighting in here. Things have been moved around. Um, the floor's a different colour from the last time I was there as well. And so what you're saying is, don't 
think that you've seen it all, we're going to keep trying to surprise you. Absolutely. You know, we've got, we've got cars. In the first six months that I started here in the job, I think I probably got offered about one car or bike on loan every 10 days. So it was pretty crazy. I've got a file in my office of all the cars that have been offered to us and some amazingly great cars. Some of the things that walk through the front door, you cannot believe they're sitting in a shed like they're still surviving. And that's really exciting because it lets us just swap them one at a time maybe three or four for, for big exhibition topics, but there's always something new to see. You know, we're always putting our information out on Facebook, so when things are coming and going, right. you'll be able to follow us on the Facebook page, National Motor Racing Museum, and you will see exactly what's going on. And when we're moving stuff around and interesting stuff going on at the track, we'll always keep the, the uh, audience informed what we're doing, so you can always check up and see what's changed since last time. So whether you're here in Australia or further afield, if you're going to be in Sydney, by the way, and you're coming over from Europe or the US... Um, it's literally a three... It takes just under three hours. It doesn't matter which way you drive, actually, whether you come through the, uh, the Blue Mountains or you go up the uh, Bells of Lyme Road, that which is a lovely drive, by the way. I always... It take about three hours. There's no need to rush. The speed limits here are quite low and very well policed, I should mention. So there's always a reason to come up here, not least that you can also, if there's nothing going on at the track, drive at 60 k's around Mount Panorama because it is a, a public road. Then you stop in down here and realise that this is really a place of the motor racing gods. I have to talk about a few of these cars, though, Brad, before we move on in the lounge exhibition. The uh, Mobile One Folk, uh, the Mobile One Commodore, rather, sitting there that he, he shared with Mark Scaife here. Um, that is a classic car, but my goodness, when you look at it next to the two Fords that aren't that far away in time, it looks like it's of a completely different era because that is, when you talk about stock cars, that really looks like a stock-shaped car. Absolutely. You know, that early days of supercar racing here in Australia, from 97 when the category started, through to probably the mid sort of 2000 mark, the cars radically evolved. And, and then we, when we had the 2018 winning car here next to it, which is a race machine, you know, mm. these things, in the early days, these were shells that went down the production line and Holden and Ford. They got modified, they got turned into race cars, but there are so many pieces on these cars that are the same as a rental car, it's the same as your mum and dad's car, same as your family car, whereas nowadays there is very little on those cars that are the same as the ones you buy off the, off the dealer lot, you know, headlights and taillights and... That's kind of about it. Mm -hmm. So it is amazing to see the progression of cars. You know, you think, oh, you look back at the 60s cars and they were road cars completely, you know, no seatbelts or anything. They've changed a lot. But this 10-year period from the, the birth of supercar racing in Australia in 97, the changes in them are just remarkable as a race car. And it's lovely to see that. All right, we've got one holding a couple of Fords here, but you can see that evolving. And it's, it's not just the stance of the cars, because the, the two Fords, being a bit later, are sitting way lower down. Uh, the aero packages have all of a sudden sprouted the appendages even at the back of the car you're seeing the first vestiges of of underbody and underfloor with those diffusers there and this is all this is all telling the story absolutely you know there's a whole bunch of aspects to motor racing that people love you know some of them love the cars and how the cars have developed or the cars they remember when they were growing up some of them love the individual drivers and some people really get the technology you know mm -hmm. that's the thing they buy the engineering magazines they don't care about who wins and who loses mm -hmm. they care about who's doing the most amazing work on the aero the braking the tires all of that stuff and you know that's part of the story we try and tell there's the social history the crowds on the hill but there is the nuts and bolts and it's all very interesting and no matter what area you're interested in there's something that you can see and, and really take away from your visit i like what you've done because lounsey was really the start of the cult of personality in uh, if all right you have Brock and the guys beforehand, but they were so wedded to one manufacturer. Lounsey's cult of personality spread between the two brands here. But what you've also got is, is that development of technology, even just with the three cars we're looking at at the moment. Plenty of boards up on the wall, and I, I have no clue where you got all of the archive stuff. Was that a challenge? Absolutely. You know, we, I, I drew on a few personal contacts that I had, some of the known uh, motorsport archives here in Australia, and we managed to get a pretty good smattering from Craig's early days in Formula Ford right through to the current stuff, the GT stuff that he's done overseas and here at the 12 hour, as well as the supercar stuff that everyone knows and loves. So we, we had a pretty big short, short list. Um, we culled out a bit of stuff, but there's some absolute gems that we found in people's archives over the years. And uh, it was really fun putting it together as, as somebody who, you know, 
my first experiences coming to Bathurst as a punter were in 95, 96, so in that stage where Craig was really making a name for himself, going back and seeing that era and then going through to the current day was a lot of fun putting it together. People forget, of course, that in the early days, Craig was being touted as, you know, he came through single-seaters. He was being touted as a potential Formula One driver. Absolutely. You look back at the early days and sort of 96 Australian Grand Prix, he was sitting in a whole bunch of F1 cars. He was in the TWR empire. Tom Walkinshaw was tied up with Arrows at that time. There was also links to Benetton and other teams. He was really going to be the next Australian in F1. And, you know, he grew up drawing Formula Fords with Mark Webber. So they were a very yeah. similar generation, those guys. Yeah, I remember when Mark first came over to the UK and was on the British Touring Car Package. I think I seem to remember him when he, in interviewing when he got his first pole position and very much a contemporary uh, Lounsey coming through the same way. Um, as we walk away from the Lounge exhibition, which is, this, I notice you, you say you, you've titled it The Story So Far, which I, I really like. Walking past a car that I didn't expect to see here, uh, a Schnitzer BMW. Now, this isn't just any little 2002. This is a very rare car indeed. And, and first of all, what's it doing in Australia? Well, yeah, it's, um, it belongs to a collector here in Australia, and he obviously likes his BMWs. He has a, a Mobile One M3 that was driven by Brock as well in, in the museum on loan at the moment. Uh, I believe it's only one of two that were built. The other one is in the Schnitzer Museum. So we're very lucky to have this for a while. and it's, it's, it's getting some work done, and I believe it's going to be prepared for some historic events here in Australia. It does have a Goodwood sticker on the door, so you know it's obviously done the rounds over in the UK and Europe. Um, and I think it's really great because it shows we've got 1977 vintage Australian touring cars, Group C cars that we call them. But certainly when you look at what we were doing here in Australia with big V8 engines and effectively production cars compared to the European Group 5 rules, which is just out there as far as these Australian eyes see, it's a great example of how the technology compares. You know, the other side of the world, they were doing things very differently than we were. Still love the big old arches on the back end of the Group 5. Had to have the original bodywork underneath, so they were all just sort of pop riveted or bolted on. So it was a great time for people of a certain age like me. We, we remember that. Uh, I'm not going to skip past the motorcycles because I love them all dearly but this has changed massively as well since the last time I was here a lot of new plinths again a lot of uh, bright lightning and two wheels of course such an important part of Bathurst history Absolutely. You know, that was really where racing here in Bathurst started. In fact, well before Mount Panorama was built in 938, there was an early, one of the very first Australian Grand Prix meetings in 1914 was a track just outside of town. And there have been about four or five tracks outside of Bathurst, uh, including the Vale Circuit in the 20s, which was famous. You know, they, they had the motorbikes racing in one direction down one side of the road, the cars just normal traffic going in the opposite direction on the <laughs> other side of the road. And it was dirt road, so there wasn't even a white line keeping them apart. So uh, just amazing part of our history. Yeah, I, sadly that uh, place, that street circuit doesn't really exist anymore. Otherwise I would have been in the car going to have a look at that because I've researched that a little bit. It's extraordinary. Uh, you mentioned the difference between what has gone on in Europe and what's gone on here in, in Australia. Of course, there are crossovers and we're walking past a whole bunch of cars from the 1960s that anybody from Europe would uh, recognise. Consul Cortina, Cortina and... Uh, a little mini, um, which in fact is a, a replica of the car that won in 1966, England's World Cup uh, winning year, of course, for those of a, a certain age in, in football. So there was a bit of crossover, but things were still very different over here. And the car on the end, which is an original car, is an, ex an extraordinary story in the same race in 1966. Tell me a little bit of story about this car, which has it's uh, silver and red. looks like it's had a hand-painted stripe over the top of it. And I'm not sure that I even knew Isuzu were competing in those days, let alone had a car on the mountain. Absolutely, and, and you know, that era of Australian touring car racing was really interesting. The rules were that they had to have an Australian assembly plant, so a lot of these things came in CKD, so crated yeah. and knocked down from, uh, from overseas, um, and that made them eligible to race at Bathurst. So there were a small number of Isuzu Ballettes. I believe this is the only sedan 1500 that was raced. They had a couple of coupes racing in other years. But in 1966, this car was prepared for the race here at Bathurst, the 500-mile classic, as it was at the time. Um, it was owned by the Australian distributors, so they took it off the, off the stock, um, set it up for racing, ran it round. It did OK, but nothing spectacular. It certainly wasn't challenging the minis, which I think finished in the first seven or nine positions in 1966. They were really the gun car to have at the time. 
after the uh, the end of the 500-mile race, the car went back to the distributors, and it was a bit too worn out to be a demo or a used car, so they couldn't sell it. And eventually, one of the uh, one of the own or one of the uh, the heads of the distributor had it, and his wife ran around it for a little while, and it ended up spending 20 years in a paddock in Victoria. And it just out was in the orbit, absolutely out in the open, under a cover or, or something. But it it just was very unloved. Um, a keen Isuzu collector found this thing. And went, oh, I'll add it to my collection. I don't know anything about it, you know, but it's a cheap car. Yep. And then got underneath and was starting to find all of these interesting kind of specs under it. It had fancy brakes and it had funny um, harness mounts in the parcel shelf and did a little bit of research and talked to the guys who drove it back in the time and looked through some old photos. And after a while, it became apparent that this was the car. So this was the Bathurst race car. And, um, yeah, a little bit of... Um, Checking out underneath paint and some very careful work with the wet and dry sandpaper, and they've um, discovered its history. And um, he, the owner believes, and he's probably dead set right, it is the oldest unrestored car to have raced at Bathurst, so 1966. So pretty amazing story. And I love it. I love the fact that it has that pattern of the patina of the, of, of the race on it. But if you look at that, though, and the minis in the Cortinas in 1966, and then you come up... What, one year? Two years? One year? One year. 67, and we're standing in front of what effectively was the start of that rivalry we were talking about that, that Lounsey stepped across the line for. Holden versus Ford, Australian-built V8s, huge things. You could fit three of the minis in the space that you've got this Ford and Holden sitting in. This was the start of the, the Bathurst era that most people think of as the, the start of the glory years. Absolutely. You know, Holden had raced in the early 60s. Ford was racing the Cortinas, obviously. But it wasn't until the Falcon GT in 67 and then the Monaro with the V8 in 68. And that was really where the tribal warfare started. Yeah. You know, they were V8s, largely American-derived. You know, the, the Falcon GT is effectively similar to the Mustang under the skin. It's the 289 motor. It's an American platform and then Australianised. The Monaro, it's got a Chevy 327 in it. So, you know, once again, a lot of that American muscle car kind of DNA through these Australian cars. But then these are a size smaller than the muscle cars of the US yeah. in that late 60s period. You know, these are compact cars by American standards, but with a pretty big engine. So 300 horsepower, they get along nicely. Yeah. Uh, and a very lightweight car. By modern standards, there's no safety, there's no intrusion bars, there's no computers, there's no airbags. There's not, there's not even a safety cage in, that, in, in, in the Monaro or, or indeed in the Ford. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how they raced them. Some of them might have had a hoop over behind the driver's seat and that was about it. You know, they had normal lap sash or three-point seat belts for the really flash guys, and a helmet, and that was it. Some of the, uh, some of the racers were racing in suits because their sponsors were uh, manufacturers of menswear, so you know, the Gagan brothers famously were on the grid in their helmets and their three-piece suits, and that's how they raced. Not fireproof suits, he's not talking about that, by the way, as we talk about that. Of course, Bathurst, and, and you know, coming off the production car race uh, recently here at Bathurst, which is a multi-class event, and the 12 hours, which we cover as well, Let's not forget the big race at Bathurst started life as a, as a multi-class race and you still had the little cars running as well. My uh, relative Bruce Hindhoff won in a 1,000cc Toyota in his class back in those days in the late 60s. But as we move through into the late 60s and, and then into the early and mid-1970s, we begin to see the particularly Australian cars and we stand in front of a Tirana at the moment, which I think is probably one of the most Australian of Australian cars if we think about that because that was something that was particular to this marketplace and it really captured the heart of a whole generation absolutely absolutely you know we we call this series group c which is not to be confused with the le mans cars of the 80s but uh, these group c cars in australian touring car racing were really the um the manufacturers building a homologation special but then the race on sunday sell on monday and these cars, you know, in 1973, they'd actually turned down the wick a little bit. The, uh, the manufacturers had planned some real rockets on wheels, but the press got a hold of it. It turned into a big uh, catastrophe, and as a result of that, they had to sort of settle down a bit, and the production-based nature of the cars, they were allowed to modify them a lot more. But certainly, when you look at the Tirana XU1, which in earlier days was a Vauxhall Viva with a little four-cylinder. Yep. Australia, we lengthened the nose, we put a 200-odd horsepower, 3.3-litre triple carby six-cylinder in it, and then the next model ended up with a five-litre V8. Yeah. Equally, at the same time, you had the Falcons with the 5.8-litre uh, 351 motor in them, and they were pumping out a whole bunch of horsepower and pretty basic cars. You know, leaf spring, or car, or solid axle rear end yeah, in them, yeah. pretty basic stuff by modern standards. But they've got the job done. 
and, and as I say, I think that the thing was that they captured the imagination of people who could buy something that looked similar to it. And of course, there was a whole load of homologation specials that came out of, of the cars, and particularly as we run through the 1970s, the late 1970s and into the early 1980s, the uh, Tiranas particularly, and some of the bewinged monsters that you could buy uh, right off the showroom floor, I mean, you could almost have slapped a cage in those and gone racing. Absolutely. I mean, we're standing in front of two L34 Tiranas, including one driven by Sterling Moss and Jack Brabham, so that's a pretty good pair of names here at Bathurst. They did all right, those two guys, I heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not so great at Bathurst. Uh, it, was, it was Moss's kind of comeback after the Goodwood accident yeah. in, the, in the 60s. He and uh, Jack Brabham teamed up, and it was a great marketing exercise for his sponsors. But unfortunately, on the, uh, on the starting grid, uh, so Jack started the race, they selected two gears, the linkage just bound up, and he actually got hit up the, uh, the boot of the car from a tri- Triumph Dolomite sprint of all things, um, which upset the punters greatly. They eventually straightened the back out, but it was, it was a nothing day. But these cars, when they first released these uh, L34 Tiranas, the rumour was that you had to have a CAMS licence to be able to own one because they were so powerful and they were such an animal of a car that they weren't going to sell it to anyone off the street. You had to have a, a competition race licence and the vast majority of these cars were really intended to race. They built the minimum number that CAMS required for, to allow them to race, but they were really a race car in disguise. And just look and sound great even today. And of course, many of these cars still run in fact some of the cars that we we went past from the 1960s they've got plates on them and you guys still take these cars out yeah absolutely we um, we do a a range of different activities during the year you know they're great for pr exercises for vip visitors and things like that we've had the governor general of australia go around the circuit in our car um We've had a, a bunch of dignitaries, but we also have an event on Father's Day here, which is good fun, and um, people can buy a seat in one of the replica race cars and go around the circuit. Only 60 k's an hour, but it's an old car, so you're going around in a Mini Cooper or a Monaro or a Falcon GT, and it's fun. You know, It's not the car that you turned up to the museum in. It's not what you drive every day, and it's an experience. It's going back in time, and on Father's Day, you know, whose dad wouldn't love to go around the track at Bathurst in an old cool car? And Father's Day here is September time? September. So, yeah, yeah the weather's nice. It's yeah. a nice day out. It's a bit cool, but it's okay. And it's a good lead-in for us. We start get ready for thinking about touring cars here at Bathurst for, for October. So it's a good time of the year. I seem to be stuck on um, Tiranas here. The, the A9X in the Marlborough colours. This is the, the Brock and Richards 05 car. And everybody knows what the drink-drive limit is here in those days because of the 05 genius, genius, genius piece of, of marketing from everyone concerned. This uh, A9X, the, the, the SS, this is another step forward, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, this was one of the first, uh, well, certainly first Holdens to have four-wheel disc brakes. Um, they'd put a much better rear axle from all the lessons they'd learned from earlier touring car racing. And this was kind of a pinnacle of that kind of Group C era of the production cars. After this, they started going away and they were less production-based into the early Commodore era. And then finally, when Group A came in in 1985, then it's a whole different structure entirely. We, we think, obviously, of Bathurst, and particularly the big race, the 1,000Ks, as, as a, a particularly Australian thing, but there's always been a national interest in it, and the Japanese manufacturers particularly have always had a little eye on what's going on, and, and this Toyota that we're in front of now is a perfect example of that. Absolutely. You know, this is a 1978 Celica, so not exactly what you'd think as a fire-breathing race car, but the class races in the Bathurst era... Um, were just as important as the outright. You know, the outright ones are the ones everyone remembers, but certainly for the manufacturers, it was a very, very useful opportunity to get involved. A lot of these cars were run by privateers, but they got significant factory support, whether it was importing a special car in or special bits that were available in Japan out of the tuning houses over there. And also, I guess the thing is, there were a bunch of international drivers. You know, 1977, Alan Moffat in the, in the Falcon, he was partnered by Jackie X. Mm-hmm. Pretty handy guy with endurance racing. Yeah. Why wouldn't you get him? Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, Jackie is one of the few internationals that have done well. Yeah. There was a whole bunch of internationals that came out here and weren't quite up to the challenges of the mountain. Um, fortunately, that's changed. The GT3, the 12-hour, has yeah. found that internationals can drive at Bathurst. They, they've got the hang of it. But certainly in that 70s era, international drivers weren't necessarily the uh, guarantee of success that you'd think they should be. If we move a little bit further down, we're at the uh, Australian National Motor Museum here at Bathurst, and Brad showing at me around uh, at the moment. The... 1984 Holden VK, 
Group C Commodore. Now, this is what most people who would come here of a slightly younger generation, they would look at that and think, yeah, okay, that's, that's a supercar, it's a V8 supercar. They, they can make that jump from that to the much later cars that we looked at earlier on from Lounsey's collection. Absolutely. You know, um, these, this is the very last Group C racer at Bathurst that won. Um, it's still got a full interior in it, so it, it's still a bit road car, but it's very, very evolved from the early days. Um, and it really is the prototype for that Australian class that turns into supercars. We did the Group A thing for a while, mm. but then things like Ford Sierras and Nissan GDRs, which were really an amazing piece of kit and developed for international Group A racing, it kind of upset the apple cart here in Australia. Yes. The Holdens and the Fords, the V8s, weren't quite as dominant as they seemed in the past. And the world changed, you know. Um, across the board, that Group C, or Group A era ended. Um, the manufacturers turned into an arms race. And as a result of that, the Australian market decided we'd go back to the, I guess, the earlier days of V8s here, touring car racing and Ford versus Holden. And really, these Group C cars from the 70s and 80s are the prototype of that class. Yeah, absolutely. Before we move on, though, I do want to have a word about this Nissan Bluebird. Uh, Bluebird's... For somebody from the northeast of England, Bluebirds, you mentioned um, knockdown kits earlier on. Nissan's big factory uh, in the UK is just on the outskirts of Sunderland. And when I worked for Washington Development Corporation, I was part of the team that uh, did the, uh, the proposal to have them do, to come to that part of the world. And this is what they were building to start with, the very three box. If you had a seven-year-old dr- draw a car it's a three box it could well be a nissan bluebird this was a 1.8 four cylinder with a huge turbo on it and for the deer pumping out ridiculous horsepower absolutely and it, it's funny you know in australia we never saw the the hot version those things were used in rally driving a little bit yes. but when the turbo bluebird turned up at bathurst and for touring car racing it was a bit of surely this isn't legal you know this has got to be cheating don't they have to build some of these but a japanese market bluebird was available with the turbo so mm. they used the technology of the day they used the way that the regulations were written they found the loopholes and in fact in 1984 when the brock car won the the v8 commodore the car that was on pole was the bluebird turbo it was fast it might not have had the duration it might have been a bit hard on tires it might not have been quite the package but as a one-lap screamer i mean this bluebird was something else and you mentioned as well there was a flirtation with FIA rules and perfect example of that is the car that's sitting next to it, which is the British Racing Green and White uh, Jaguar, all, almost TWR colours, GRA Jaguar. Uh, this is the Armin Harner and John Goss car. Armin Harner raced all over the world, great German driver. And th- there was that flirtation with that TWR. Tom Walkinshaw came across here. They did, they did very well. But it, it just... It couldn't last that era. And when we get slightly further down there, there's a a Sierra uh, and a BMW as well down there. You mentioned the arms race. This sort of Jaguar, I think, was kind of all right, but it was getting, by the time you got to the turbocharged cars, it was just getting bonkers. And Group A couldn't last, FIA Group A couldn't last in in the rest of the world. It wasn't going to last here either. Absolutely. You know, it, um, it really was the manufacturer that wanted to spend the most money could have won yes. Group A. And the early days, yeah, the, the, the XJS is very much just a tuned-up factory version. Next to it is one of the Zack Speed Mustangs that Dick Johnson ran for a little while. Mm. Not terribly successful here in Australia. It wasn't until the Sierra arrived that Ford had a weapon. Mm. Um, at the same time, Holden were building Group A specials under the Brock HDT umbrella. They were OK. Uh, some of the races in Australia went well. Uh, certainly 85, the Jaguar won. In 86, a privateer in the, in the uh, Commodore. In 87, with the disqualification of the Eggenberger Sierras, Brock won in the Commodore. And then after that, we started to get into that real turbo era. 1990, a Holden won, but it was a real kind of aberration. It, yeah. it shouldn't have happened that way. And that was in the era of the Godzilla Skylines, the JDRs. Yeah. So once that happened, um, you could see the writing was on the wall for that class of motor racing. Not all about Bathurst here, I should say. Although um, Super, Super Touring did race uh, at Bathurst, of course, I've just spied uh, a very important car and coming, as I did, from the British Touring Car Championship uh, back in the early, mid and late 1990s. This is a four-wheel drive Audi A4, a Quattro. Uh, this is one of the Brad Jones cars. Uh, and this is a very important car from a very important time because Audi did something in that Super Touring area which, which looked like it was going to become a really popular global formula. It needed to be because it was very expensive to 
produce and develop the cars. It was a formula that kept on evolving. And Audi, in one year, won seven championships around the world. It's a feat that uh, has never been... Uh, even got close to a game because we've never had that parity of rules in touring car racing around the world. Maybe with world touring cars and uh, TCRs, maybe that could happen again, but something quite extraordinary. And this was the car that won that important seventh championship. Absolutely. So um, in Australia, it was at the time where there was a real big split. It looked like there was going to be a war between the five later, so what became V8 supercars, and the super touring rules. At the end of Group A, there was a bit of a vacuum, and, and some of the classes, they were running both, both sorts of vehicles in the Bathurst race here, in the class records and the outright cars. And then commercially, there were some shifts in rights. And for two years, there were two races here at Bathurst yeah. within a month of each other. There was the five liters uh, and the two liter cars. And this car was one of the front runners in that super touring era here in Australia. Brad Jones was really um, out there in front. Some of the BMW teams were doing pretty well also. But this car, as you say, won that seventh Audi title. So it's a really important part of Audi's history and worldwide touring car history. And when you compare this 1997 Audi A4 to a 1997 V8 supercar, the Audi's like a spaceship. It's all carbon fibre and factory everything, whereas... The, uh, the supercars of that era, they're starting to turn into tube frame. They're not quite NASCARs, but their, their production routes are a long way away. I mean, that super touring era, even in the UK, I think at one stage we had nine manufacturers uh, competing. We, we watched the German Championship. We watched the Australian Championship as well because the, the TV rights were beginning to get sorted out and, and become global as well. It was a great time. But again, unfortunately, the costs took over. Um, I know from talking to guys at the time, the kind of money that was being spent then in the 1990s, probably more than it takes to run a GT Le Mans car for a whole World Endurance Championship Series now, which when I think about that is slightly, slightly worrying. Um, we mentioned the motorcycles. The motorcycles are looking great uh, and such a big part of the history, as, as we said. Not just the bikes themselves, but you've got some great memorabilia here, um, whether it's helmets, whether it's trophies, uh, or whether indeed it's race leathers. Absolutely. You know, we've got some of the great names of the sport and certainly for the UK market, we've got a helmet that belonged to Joey Dunlop. So, you know, that's pretty cool. Even people in Australia that don't know anything about the TT, the Isle of Man, they go, oh, Joey Dunlop, I've heard of him. Um, fortunately, we've, uh, we're lucky enough to have some bikes from Wayne Gardner, so one of the uh, world champions that have come out of Australia, the 87 world champion, and we've in fact got his 87 Honda that he rode in that year. But all of the, uh, the various... Uh, leathers and helmets from international and local riders to really highlight the importance of motorbike racing here at Bathurst to our history. All of these lovely shiny exhibits, of course, um, beautifully presented. Um, most of them, as we said, on the button, ready to go. Uh, however, motor racing is not always about getting the car back in one piece. And there's a particular exhibit that I want to have a look at round here and have you t tell me the story about, which perfectly illustrates the fact that, as it says on the back of every ticket, motor racing is dangerous. What we have here is an X supercar, <laughs> to quote the Monty Python sketch. Um, this car's a bit pre-loved. Tell me about this Ford Falcon. It's a Ford FG Falcon supercar, or at least it was. Yeah, this is, this is one of those ones where it does prove how, uh, how on the edge some of these guys are. So in 2014, Chas Mostert, young guy, really making a name for himself. They win Bathurst. Him and Paul Morris do a fantastic job with the Ford factory team. 2015 comes along. They've got a new car, the FGX. They're looking really good. They're thinking two in a row. This would be really special for a young guy. And Chas was on top of his Boy, game. Yes. Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, though, Friday qualifying comes... A little bit of a misstep, a little bit of an incident. You don't have little incidents at that part of the mountain, though. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's going steep downhill. It's getting towards the top of Conrad Strait, so it's, it's a pretty hairy part of the track on, on the best of days. And it went wrong. Um, Chaz cannonballed off various walls, took out a marshalling station, um, and the guys that were in there were very lucky to escape with only relatively minor injuries. Chaz's car... Uh, was fairly well destroyed. The, the safety cage did the job, but unfortunately with the, uh, the structure inside the car, the gear stick and other things, Chaz broke his leg um, and had to be airlifted to hospital. So his great Bathurst defence campaign in 2015 uh, didn't really get any further than Friday qualifying. He spent the weekend in Orange in hospital. Now, 
normally what happens with old race cars is they get rebuilt and they race again or they get rebuilt and used as show cars but the Tickford team didn't do that with this car and Tickford are known for not wanting to give any of their cars away but why on earth would they decide to keep a destroyed shell pretty much as it came off the mountain and in fact as it is here now at the moment in the early days of it being exhibited here it's still got some of the bits sitting inside it that were torn off fell off or were pulled off absolutely my understanding is that after the race weekend they they swept up all the pieces and loaded them into the back of the truck. They took it home and anything that they could salvage out of the car that was still usable, they pulled out. So um, I think some of the, the transmission, the engine and gearbox, some of the interior parts. And then they really didn't exactly know what they wanted to do with it. Um, my understanding is that somebody from the team didn't like throwing things out, so for a superstitious reason or otherwise. And it, sent, it sat with all the bits strewn inside the shell uh, on top of a shipping container out the back of the wor- workshop in Melbourne. And uh, it wasn't until recently where some of our, our great supporters that we have here at the museum put us together with Tickford and said, you know, how about we'll get rid of the car and we'll put it on display. So we're very fortunate that this one survived. You know, this should have been probably dog food cans by now, really, because there's not much left of it that you'd be able to reuse again. It's a uh, it's very destroyed car. But and what it does show is just how well-engineered these things are because it's clearly been a massive hit. Now, I, I know the, the fenders, the, the mudguards, are, uh, were plastic in this area. The, the roof had to be uh, metal, uh, as per the, the street cars, although it's not necessarily a structural item. It's pop riveted on. But the safety cage itself, which extends all the way to the back suspension mount, there's a tiny bit of damage on the left rear suspension mount, but the rest of it, all the side guards and everything else, absolutely intact. Absolutely. I, I think if you put a straight edge along all the frame rails, it would be fine. Yeah. The, 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 the sheet metal is all destroyed. The suspension elements, you can see they've broken or they've torn off straight out of the mountings, but the actual bit that keeps the driver safe is perfectly well done. And, and it is a real testament to the engineering that goes into these cars. Was there any soul-searching from you about bringing this here to show the, last, the less glamorous side and the more dangerous side of motorsport? Or do you think that's an, the safety side of thing that we're looking at here? And in fact, it's next to a medical car and a fire tender as well, rather appropriately uh, at the moment, uh, recognising the great work that all of our volunteers in motorsport do. But was there any soul-searching to say that mm, it might be in a bit bad taste to bring this guy? Look, I think because the outcome of this one wasn't, a fatal accident, then I think it's much more comfortable in, in displaying that because, you know, some people they actually come to motorsport for the incidents because that's what they that's the bit that they think is exciting rather than the actual battles on the track, and it is it's it's a part of it. You know, when you look at the highlights from any racing series, be it F1, be it GT, yeah. be it motorbikes, it's the stacks that people go, wow, that's exciting. You know, there's lots going on, but equally. You know, this, this is a better proof of the engineering than a, than a pristine car in many respects. This actually shows that it works, you know. When you look through the window of a complete car and you see all the bars, you think, oh, it seems like overkill. You know, why do they need to do that? Or how does it actually work? Whereas this one, with all of the panels taken off and all the skin stripped away, you can actually see the construction. And as this display evolves, we'll actually interpret that better so you can actually have a better look at what goes into the manufacture of these cars. And also, it does. It, it talks about the fact that motorsport needs all the people. It needs the medics. It needs the marshals. It needs the fireys. All of these people that make it happen. It's not the guys in the car that make motor racing happen it's the cast of thousands the other 95 percent of people at the track from the marshals the flaggies the security guards the teams the guys on the on the uh on the wrenches mm. the guys that are cleaning the wheels in the pits the commentators in the stands the pa- the punters everyone goes into making these events successful so this is a part of that story no, i love it and I, and I think that's an adequate ex- explanation i completely agree i was at pike's peak last year and uh, saw a car that had rolled half the way down the mountain from 13,000 feet or whatever it was and the lad walked away from it because they have very very strict rules not necessarily on what your driving ability is but on the structural capabilities of the car and they actually crack test um, all of the cages on the cars before they go up Pike's Peak and that you know probably saved his life. Uh, I want to finish off our tour of the the exhibition area uh, we've actually come full circle literally as well as metaphorically uh, literally as well as metaphorically um, you were talking about people there, and, and, and motor racing is about cars, but it's about the stories, it's about people. And effectively, at the start of your lounge 
exhibition, Craig Lowndes exhibition, is something that's very personal to you and your family. It's a scrapbook, which is your brother's, which goes right back to Lowndes' Formula Ford days. I suppose the first question is, what was it that made you guys, motorsport fans, hook onto him at that early, very early stage of his career? Yeah, well, it, it's an interesting thing. And, you know, I guess the whole story, whether it be the mo- motorbikes, the 50s cars, the speedway stuff, it's all about that connection with the fans. Mm. And for some reason, you know, Craig's a couple of years older than me. Um, he was just a young guy who looked like he had the world at his feet. He was so dominant from the minute that he started racing. It's like, I like this guy. Um, his personality, his driving style, his ability, and it looked like he was going to go all the way. And I think that's what made my brother and I both amazing fans of Craig. And mm. the fact that we were holding guys, he was driving for the factory team next to Brock, probably mm. was the icing on the cake. But there was just that connection. And it's the same. Everyone that comes in the door here, oh well, the vast majority of people come in the door here, they have that connection. They have their favourite. They have the guy they love. They're the ones that when they come in and they don't see a car that belonged to Dick Johnson, they go... I'm a Dick fan, and why, am I, why isn't there not a Dick Johnson car here? Because I'm a Dick Johnson fan, and he's the most important person in the sport. And we're all like that. We all have our biases, be they conscious or unconscious. We love what we love. But isn't it also if, you know, you go and say, oh, right, well, I was a so-and-so fan, and there was the car that was his biggest nemesis? You know, because there's that kind of thing as well, there's that tribalism that we were talking about earlier on. Well, if that's very personal to you and your brother, um, you talk about people having all kinds of uh, different ways that they support the sport. We've got a, a bit of a bumper guard here um, from the huge accident that Lounsey had at Calder Park in 1999. And the story is here that somebody rang you up when you, they heard about this. So again, this is the personal side of things that people have got. Uh, you know, there's, there's the, uh, the scrapbook there. There'll be other people who are listening to this going, oh yeah, I've got scrapbook for such and such a driver. And if they ever do a thing about... Dave Miggins, then I, I remember when he was in cards. But this is an extraordinary piece of memorabilia. Absolutely. And, and the, going back to the scrapbook, it's funny. In 2019, people don't even have newspapers, let alone a scrapbook. What's so the, this is a, the, the digital era is going to change the way we do that. That's a very good point. But uh, yeah, this bumper cover, um, we'd start doing a little bit of teaser media, putting stuff out on social media, saying, oh, you know, we've got a lounge exhibition coming up for the 12 hour weekend. And a guy from Orange, so it's 40 minutes drive away, rings up and says, oh, I've got the rear bumper cover from Craig's car that he crashed in the 99 Calder race. And it was a massive crash off the start line, barrel rolled along. Craig actually had a, a couple of races out of, the, out of the championship season as a result. And um, I said, oh, really? Like, it's the real... And he said, yeah, I've got a certificate and it's signed. And, uh, and um, I went, oh, that'd be great. We'd love to have it. And he said, oh... Look, I'll, I'll bring it across this afternoon. So within two hours of the phone call, it was sitting in my office, ready to go on the wall for the Craig Lowndes exhibition. And I rang our, uh, our collections person and said, oh, we need to draw up a loan agreement for this thing. It's just come across from, you know, 40 minutes away. And it's now one of the kind of hero pieces yeah. and one of the most memorable moments in Craig's career, other than the various Bathurst wins and the GT wins and all that stuff. You know, sometimes you remember the crashes as much well, as the victories. Yeah, as we were saying earlier on, this, Brad, this has been fantastic. A great work being done by you and the team and Bathurst Council. We should remember that Bathurst Regional Council supports motor racing, not just here at the museum, but also, of course, at the circuit. We're back out at the shop with various memorabilia here, of course, and some of the t-shirts here are absolutely i'm keeping my hands in my pockets um i'm just gonna, i'm not going to disturb anybody out here so i'm going to step back out to uh, the outside world here um of course we've got the the brocky sculpture in front which everybody wants to have their photograph taken in front of first of all thank you very much and i say thank you on a personal level for letting me come here uh, and take up so much of your time but also for what you and the team have done for motorsport enthusiasts whether from Australia or further afield you're doing great work here what does the future hold for the national and let's let's not forget this is the national Australian National Motorsport Museum of course it's next to Mount Panorama why wouldn't it be but what what comes next in the next three four five years look Joe um and, and thank you very much for coming. And it's been great to uh, get our message out to, to your audience as well. And you know, it's, we're just two petrol heads having a chat, though. Man. That's the point, that's the point, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it, it's fantastic to think that um, you know people around the world can can hear a production race here at Bathurst over the internet. It, it's amazing to think that it's shrunk the community so much. In terms of the museum's future, you know, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. We're, we're standing up better exhibitions. We're going to cover some more different areas in Australian motorsport. You know, there's things like rallying, off-road racing, 
drag racing, all those things that don't necessarily fit to the Mount Panorama mould, but it's an important part of the story. There are areas where you know, youth development, kids in motorsport, women in motorsport, all of these great subject matter. We, we've got no shortage of stories that we can tell. We're going to uh, do some more work in some of the more immersive um, aspects, some more uh, 3D um, presentations using multimedia, using that vast history of what's happened just on the other side of the fence to tell the Bathurst story, but also highlight some more stuff. You know, people bring things out of their shed. We want to get them out there to the world so that they can see what is lying around in people's sheds here in Australia and some of the global stories that involve our Australian motorsport personalities as well. There's people all over the world listening to this going, oh, I've got some stuff. I've been told for years I shouldn't have bothered keeping that, but I can get that out of the attic or the shed, and it, it might be of interest to some people. Now, you know, all right, it's not going to be every piece of memorabilia, but in some ways that, again, goes back to that personal connection that makes a collection is the connection. It, it's not necessarily the obvious things that somebody will have kept a... I don't know, a credential or had it signed or have a bit of a car or have a photograph. And, and you mentioned, actually, I never even thought about the whole digital era, but things that have been kept from print back down through the years, whether it's auto magazines or bits of newspapers, those things are going to become harder and harder to find. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the digital era has a whole bunch of challenges. There's so many more photographs nowadays because yes. you're not paying for developing. You're not mm-hmm. doing 36 on a roll and then, oh, oh I remember I'm those days. Yeah, absolutely. Like we've all been there and done that. So that that's a benefit. But the the actual archiving uh, and and some of this stuff, you know, it was printed in pretty high quality back in the 50s and 60s. Some of the more modern stuff. Its longevity is a bit of a challenge. We can scan it, but it's not quite the same thing. Um, we'll, we'll work out a way to do that. You know, I think you're going to see um, things p- printed up, you know, scanned and then put up on screens rather than hard copies on walls. That's kind of cool. But a tactile object, I mean, you know, it's the difference between an MP3 and a, and a vinyl or, or a CD oh, recording. You know, you want to you want to flick through the line of notes. You want to see the artwork. You don't want to just have ones and zeros coming out of your speakers. It, it's the same thing with what we're doing here. And long may it remain that way that motorsport is uh, is analog. I like I like that idea. Brad, thanks again. Thanks. Please thank. Uh, everyone at the Bathurst Regional Council who supports motor racing here in every way, shape or form and we wish you all the best and and let us know when there's something else happening and we'll make sure that uh, all of our listeners know about it. John, thank you so much again for your time. Um, Thank you to all the listeners that have uh, have tuned in to listen to uh, the story of the National Motor Racing Museum. Thanks for coming to Bathurst and hopefully we'll see you at the 12 hour if not before. Better plug the website while you're on. Certainly, it's uh, nmrm.com.au and you can follow us on Facebook, National Motor Racing Museum. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at radiolamont.com.